O God, who taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant that by the same Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so now we have made a turn in the Catechism uh, to talking about prayer through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. Um, I've said this before, but in the ancient church there were three, what, what Jim Packer refers to as pillars of catechesis, and they were the Apostles' Creed as the rule of faith, uh, the Lord's Prayer as the rule of prayer, and the uh, Ten Commandments as the rule of, of um, some, some people call it the moral rule, or, or probably even better, the law of behaving Christianly, right, would be another way to put it. Um, and, and these three form this incredible uh, instruction because what they do is they, they establish you in the faith, right, first, right, because this is part of the problem that we have. Uh, ever since the Reformation, there's been this emphasis on, well, first teach the moral law, and you know why? Because Martin Luther's form for catechesis was first the Ten Commandments to show you what a miserable sinner you are, then introduce you to the gospel, and then teach you to pray. I, I think this is problematic on several grounds. One is, one is that it, uh, and of course it's all based in Galatians, it's right? The, the law is like a schoolmaster to lead me to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, I get you, Marty Luther, but there's, there's something bigger going on here, which is that... Um, I would just say that without faith, without the grace of the gospel, it's impossible to lead a life that is, that is pleasing to God, that's righteous. Um, and of course, Martin Luther's like, well, it doesn't matter if you're righteous or not. Like, <laughs> all that matters is faith. And so the, 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 the commandments are seen as simply a means to drive you to the gospel, right? Um, and I think in Anglicanism, we've just been much more clear about saying, well, we're going to start with the Apostles' Creed and then go to the Lord's Prayer and then go to the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and and that's the classical way of doing it. It's, it's actually the Augustinian way of doing it. Um, and and I, would, I would say as well that um, this, is, this is simply, uh, uh, to me, I think it's, it's a portrayal of how things really go. Right? You, you learn the faith. You learn to call upon the God in whom you believed, right? And then you learn to serve that God, right? In, in prayer and humility and, and by his grace. Um, if you put the law up front, then you're sort of like, oh, you know, and it also tends towards saying, well, the whole point is to know the law and do it. So there's kind of like the great Lutheran backfire is what I'd say. <laughs> it's sort of like, well, that doesn't really work because then people are like, well, then all Christianity is really about is keeping moral commandments. And... And that leads you to a kind of um, uh, a kind of moralism that is very destructive, right? Because here's the thing: can any of us do these things? No, we can't. Not of our own accord. Um, but here's the great thing that I think we've we've done here is we've said, look, you look to the faith, you look to the Apostles' Creed, you look to the things of the gospel, and then you learn to pray. And it's in a prayerful, faithful life that you learn to act rightly in the world. Um, because here's part of the problem. If you don't know where you are, and you have no point of reference for where you are, who you are, whatever it is, then how can you act rightly? There's no way. 
Um, so there's, there's a kind of wisdom here that I think is, is really important. The other thing that you'll note if you're, if you're into uh, transcendentals and, and kind of classical philosophy and uh, if you know, that's your thing, I don't know if it is of anybody here, but, but it's, it's to say, what do we learn? Truth, um, we learn goodness, and we learn the beauty of a holy life. Um, we learn faith, hope, and love in that order, right? The, the greatest of these is love, right? And that's not to say that, that following the commandments is all that's really important. It's to say that, that, um, that I really do believe this, that in, the, that in, that in God's vision for us um, is not just that we would believe in him, but that we would, believing in him, turn to him in prayer, and furthermore, live lives of holiness. Um, so all that's just kind of laying all that out for you. Um, and I think here's, here's one of the real issues is that if you... If you play up one of the pillars over the other two, then you go astray, right? You play up faith without prayer and without works, right? You pray up uh, works without this faith, without this life of prayer. Often worse is playing up the life of prayer, kind of spirituality without sanctification, spirituality without the faith, um, then, then it becomes quickly a kind of Gnosticism or a kind of sentimentality or, or worse, a kind of um, yeah, spiritualism is what I'd say. Uh, and it's very destructive because you, you wind up with this uh, kind of uh, contentless faith, right? And, and you're calling upon the God of your imagination and not the God of revelation. Um, so, so I hope you can see the balance here. And the, the desire for balance is based in this desire to say, like, look, a Christian needs to know what God has done in Christ, needs to know who God is, um, needs to know how to pray, and knowing God and knowing how to pray to that God knows how to live this life of righteousness. Now, we all fail in the life of righteousness, right? We fail regularly, and we fail in ways that are catastrophic. Um, but, but it is in the life of, of believing uh, and prayer that we're enabled to live rightly. Um, so I want to kind of lay all that out with you. Okay, so we've been talking about prayer, and uh, we're on page 67 in the Catechism. Um, and, uh, and one of the things I hope you'll find is that this section is not just sort of like, here's what the Lord's Prayer says. It's actually deeply insightful and has a lot of, has quite a bit to say. Um, we've, we've dealt with these previous uh, uh, questions, things like, what should you pray? Well, I should pray the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, the collected prayers of the church, and my own prayers that the Spirit leads me. So uh, it's often the impression that people coming into Anglicanism will say something like, well, but you people, you know, you, all, you pray all these written prayers and you don't pray extemporaneously. Well, yes, we do. <laughs> and, uh, but but here's, here's the thing that I think has really been, um, a thing that stood out in my life has been that um, I learned to pray from the prayer book. So when I was in college and I had a bunch of Baptist friends and they'd say, you know, would you pray the blessing for the meal? They'd be like, wow, you really know how to pray. <laughs> well, I learned it <laughs> from, from these written prayers, right? Um, and and uh, it's, it's benefited me through my life. And last week I was sharing with you that um, Teresa of Avila, this great mystic, you know, she would go into her times of private prayer. And, and you know what happened when she went in for her times of private prayer. She would have these ecstatic visions, you know. And it was just like all the glory of God just being like unveiled to her, right? She always brought a book. She still brought this little prayer book with her because her, and, and people would ask her about it. They'd say, why, why do you bring the little prayer book? She'd say, well, 
I don't know what's going to happen in that time. I might be bored. I might need, I might need a little encouragement, right? I, not, I might need to know what to pray. Of course, it wasn't everything she really needed, but she brought it with her anyway because, um, like all uh, Christian mystics, she cut her teeth on a prayer book. Um, and so I really want you to see that, that, that um, there's not a kind of false choice here between learning to pray well extemporaneously and learning to pray liturgically. The two go together and they form one another. Okay? I learned to pray as a member of the body. I also learned to pray as a member of Christ. Whose prayers are found where? In the Psalms. Like, this is the thing that I really want you to see. The Psalms are Jesus' prayers before the Father. Um, and, and they speak of Jesus. So uh, these are really wonderful, you know, wonderful opportunities. And, and I would say as well, one of the great things about the, um, the new Psalter in the uh, prayer book that we have is that it's written to be Christological. It's translated to be Christological, which there, there's a sort of choice, choice you can make when you translate a Psalter. It's something like um, you can either choose to translate it literally, which is going to be kind of dry, and if you want a literal translation of the Psalter, just look to the uh, New American Standard Bible, right? Um, or you can be Christological, and you wind up with this, a very different kind of Psalter, but that points you to Christ. Um, and there's a long tradition of doing this, a long tradition of, of that kind of translation. Um, and it really goes back to ancient Christians, and in particular, Jerome and his translation into Latin of the Psalms. So, uh, so the Psalms that, you know, medieval monks would, would recite were deeply Christological, and that's something we often miss, and they were thinking about Christ in the Psalms. Okay, I'm, I'm going on a little long, but I just want you to see that. Um, and then there's this question in 159, when should you pray? I should pray at regular times throughout each day with fellow Christians for prayer and worship, and whenever I am aware of the needs for God's grace, and I should learn to pray without ceasing. Actually, I don't think we asked this one last week. Let's do it today. Uh, when should you pray? I should pray at regular times throughout each day with fellow Christians for prayer and worship, and whenever I am aware of the need for God's grace, I should learn to pray without ceasing as I grow in the knowledge of God's presence. Um, so let's, let's go through this. I should pray at regular times. Um, one of the keys to actually getting a prayer life going is to be regular, meaning every day at the same time, usually morning and evening, um, and what's provided for us in the prayer book? The very form of that, right? Morning prayer, evening prayer. Um, and the, the joy of that is that if you really commit to the daily office, and by the way, office means something like obligation, like it's our daily official duty, right? <laughs> to pray the daily office. Um, and and I, I've said this, I said this last week, but you know, if you're going to be an Anglican, you've got to get started with a daily office sooner or, la sooner or later. Um, because it will start to form that, um, that life of reading Scripture and, and prayer. But these regular times are really important. Well, why? Because what they do is they, they form us uh, in, in these disciplines of prayer uh, such that a flourishing life of prayer in all the other times can be the result. So here's how we Americans usually think. We think, oh, if I want to do something, then I should just start doing it randomly and at weird times and like whenever I feel like it. Because it's, it's my... It's my, uh, my passion or my feeling or my, uh, my, um, my sort of sense of joy in the thing that will drive me to do it. Well, how well does that work? 
Like, not at all, right? I don't brush my teeth because I enjoy it. I brush them because I've gotten in the habit, right? I floss, or try to, because I've gotten in the habit, right? And it's this whole thing of, if you want to do something, and you want to do it every day, and you want to do it regularly, and you want to do it even when you don't have to, right? Then you build these regular disciplines. Um, and, and of course, lots of people have, lots of people know this, you know, if you, if you want to uh, get in shape, what do you do? You work out according to a routine. You, 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 and you write it down. You say, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to run. I'm going to do cardio. I'm going to you know, lift weights. I'm going to do all that stuff, right? And in a lot of ways, what you do, if you really want to do it, is you get a trainer, right? You get somebody to show you, like, or to just challenge you and say, like, this is what you're going to do today, right? It's like all these CrossFit people who show up and there's like a big blackboard full of the torture that they're going to endure that day. And, and you know, why does it work? Because if we were left to our own devices, what would we do? Uh, okay, I'm going to do this one push-up. And, like, and, you know, I love Jim Gaffigan because he talks about working out. And he's like, what are your, what are your, what are your workout goals? He's like, to not work out. <laughs> and he's just honest, right? Because we don't want to do it. Um, and the same is true with prayer, right? Um, if we're really honest about it, we'll say, I think I've got better things to do than pray. Um, and, and how do we know this? Well, because when left to our own devices, what do we do? All the other things that we think are more important. And, and, uh, and so this is really the genius of, um, of, uh, of the Anglican offices, I would put it, actually. So you may know this, that uh, from Benedict on in the 5th century, there was a, a practice of praying seven times a day among monastics. They'd wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and pray matins. And then they'd kind of go back to bed and laze around for a little while and just sort of wait for the next thing. And then they would play, they would pray lots at about six in the morning. And this was their all-consuming vocation, right? Was to do the work that was needed to support their life in the monastery, but also primarily to pray. Benedict has this idea of work and prayer go together. They, they, they meld into one life, right? And study as well. Um, but what works really well for monks doesn't work for us, you know, lay people, right? <laughs> and, uh, and by that, and of course, the monks are lay people, so we have to remember that. Um, they're primarily lay people. Um, but I've stayed in Benedictine monasteries, and it's just, it's impossible. And they just tell you, like, don't bother showing up for lauds at three in the morning, because you're going to, you won't have a good retreat. You'll be tired. Because you don't live as we do. Like, they fall asleep at 8.30, right? And they wake up at 3 in the morning. That's how they do it. Um, but it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to do. Uh, and, you know, Henry VIII brutally disestablished the monasteries, just, just basically took their wealth, took their riches, and ran away with it, which was horrid. But Thomas Cranmer went in and found his opportunity, which was, hey, hey, we need to be praying regularly. Let's not forget that as we throw the monks out of our country or as we, as we laicize them. Um, and so this, what came in its place was the daily office, morning and evening prayer. Um, and that's been the backbone of Anglican life ever since. And the, the great joy of it is that, um, look, if, if we were in a place to say, well, so you're going to, and some of you have been in this place, it's like, you need to get up every morning and pray. Okay. And you get up at 8, you know, 7 a.m. and you 
go to the time of prayer and don't really have anything in front of you and you're like, oh, good morning, Lord. Hmm, what should we talk about today? Hmm. <laughs> and you're bleary-eyed and you and you lose you you lose your concentration and you don't know what to do and and it's just it can lead to this kind of dryness and, and crisis of like I don't know what to do. Um, enter the offices. Uh, so that's a really big thing. And, and if you pray at regular times and you pray according to uh, to a form, and you also pray with fellow Christians. And this is where the rubber really meets the road, right? So if you have a family, you know, you pray in that family. If you if you want to meet up with others, you come here and meet up with others in the morning before you go off to work. And what happens? Oh goodness! Like you start to do it. Um, the other thing that I would note about the the prayer book offices is that even if you pray them alone, you should always pray in the third person. Um, some people have come to me through the years and like, should I change that to like I and me? No, 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 no. don't do that. It's it's we. Always, because you're praying with the church when you do this. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Um, and also, whenever I'm aware of the need for God's grace. So we should be regularly praying for God's grace in the midst of all the things we face in life, all the struggles and trials and all the rest. Um, far easier to pray for God's grace when we've been habitually doing it. That's the other thing, is um, if, you, if you're reminded to pray every day, then you'll, you'll take those opportunities to pray for God's grace when you need it uh, more seriously. Um, well, why? Because we're, we human beings are very habitual creatures, right? Actually, every animal is, <laughs> is a habitual creature <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, my dog, you know, she every, t- every single morning at 8.30 in the morning, <laughs> why? Because she wants to be let out. Why? Because that's what she does every day. Um, it's, it's the way it works, um, and she's used to it. Um, but this is how we learn to pray without ceasing. Um, it's, it's to say, set a tone for prayer, morning and evening, and you'll pray, you'll, you'll pray more regularly. Um, and through this, we grow in the knowledge of God's presence. Um, okay, you ready? So we're going to jump in the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> First question's easy. What is the prayer our Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray? The traditional version of the Lord's Prayer is this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Why should you learn the Lord's Prayer? I should learn the Lord's Prayer because Jesus taught it to his disciples as both a practice and a pattern for prayer to God the Father. The Lord's Prayer is found in two places in Holy Scripture. The first is in Matthew chapter 6. It's actually, you know, I I have this theory about the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, it's sort of done in what what we call a chiastic structure, um, is this kind of like, the blessed life is like this. And then you get to the center of that blessed life, and what is it? It's all about this hidden life of prayer, and then you go back out to how you really love your neighbor. So there's this incredible kind of structure that's going on. The blessed life looks like this. What's at the heart of the blessed life? Oh, it's prayer. <laughs> and then as you move out, it's how do you care for your how do you care for your neighbor? How do you pray rightly? Um, but in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord's Prayer is given as a response to a question which the disciples ask. They say, "Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples." So it's, this is actually the only thing the disciples actually ask Jesus to teach them to do. 
Um, they ask for lots of other things, like let me be seated at your right hand or your left. Uh, they ask all sorts of other things, but this is the only thing he asked, they ask him to teach them. Um, it's clear that John taught his disciples to pray, John the Baptist, um, and there was something really wonderful about this when John was teaching them to pray. But what does Jesus give them? It's sort of a giant letdown if you really think about it. It's like, well, I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. It's going to be awesome. You're going to grow in great intimacy with the Father by praying this prayer. It's like, I think there's a little bit of a letdown in it. But, but what's going on? It's actually not as much of a letdown as you'd think. And here's what, here's what the Catechism says about this. I should learn the Lord's Prayer because Jesus taught it to his disciples as both a practice and a pattern for prayer to God, the Father. Okay, so let's, let's break that down. Both a pa- practice and a pattern. Um, the, early part, the early editions of the Catechism said pattern and practice, but then they switched it and they said practice and pattern. And I think that's probably right, actually. Um, so practice. Uh, lawyers practice law, doctors practice medicine. What do we mean by that? Hopefully your doctor's not practicing on you. What do we mean by this? Do you know what your doctor does? You know what this is like. When, you go in, when, they, when they show up in that examination room, they go through an order of questions they're asking themselves. They're literally dressing you down in their minds. Why? Because this is their practice. Right? They learn a practice, which is, and I don't even know what it is. You, you do, but it's like, it's like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what's wrong with this person, right? And I'm going to go totally fresh into this, but I'm going to follow this practice. Well, I've known doctors through the years who will look at somebody and they'll be like, you need to go to the doctor like today. And they'll say, what? What's going on? It's like, I think you've got heart disease. And they'll say, really? <laughs> yeah, you've got clubbing in your fingers. I don't know if you noticed that. It's like, yeah, well, go to the doctor. And then they go to the doctor and they find out, gosh, we're going to schedule triple bypass for later on this week. It's like, that's, that's, that happens. Um, doctors who will take one look at a baby and say, this baby's in tough shape, man. This, is, this baby's rough. You know, it's jaundiced and all the rest. Well, how, how do they know this? Because they've practiced over and over and over again this form, right? And they learn the branches of the various parts. They learn to ask all these questions. They learn to, if they suspect something, to check it out, right? Um, they learn to do, you know, I, I hate it when the doctor does that hammering on your knee. But you know what they're doing? They're checking your neurological function. If your knee doesn't, doesn't jump out, there's something wrong with your brain. And it would be nice to know that, right? Because <laughs> so like, you might be able to do something about it. Uh, so all of this is to say that the practice is really important. And how do we practice prayer? Well, we turn to the most essential form, the Lord's Prayer, and from that, build a practice of prayer. Um, so we're going to talk about that. The Lord's Prayer is also a pattern for prayer. And when I was a kid, my mom tried to make our clothes. And uh, it was always a rather embarrassing thing because we'd have to wear the clothes that she made us to school. And I didn't want that. I wanted like the stuff that people, you know, rich kids could buy at the store. And, uh, but it was, it was always kind of this like, oh, she made our clothes. <laughs> and they were nice clothes, but, but there was something kind of like, uh, I don't know what to make of this. Um, but I always remember that she would sit down and the very first thing she would do is cut patterns out, right? Your, your parents may have done this. Your mother may have done this. Um, and then you pin the pattern to the cloth, right? And then you cut it out, nice and neat, keeping everything straight. And then you set the piece down on the sewing machine and you sew 
all the things together, right? Um, and, you know, you don't think that a pair of shorts is going to come out of it, but what happens? <laughs> Eventually, you've got a pair of shorts in front of you. What, who knew? <laughs> and, but is, that, is it supposed to be that way forever if you're going to get really good at, as a seamstress or as a tailor? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I, I started ordering custom shirts as a priest because I've got a weird body and, like, and I'm okay with that. But, um, but the custom shirts are so much better than the shirts they make for old tubby priests, right? And so, you know, the ones that are off the rack and they just don't fit right and they always feel like, oh, there's too much shirt here. So like, <laughs> um, I, I started having custom made and I've, I've been ordering them from this company that does business in Sri Lanka. And they talk about how the shirts are made. Those seamstresses that they hire in Sri Lanka can make a shirt without a pattern. They take their, you know, they take their measuring tape, they, and they start cranking out shirts. They can make a whole dress shirt in like, I think they said 35 minutes they can make a dress shirt. And, and I know this because I've seen this throughout the world, right? I've been to Rwanda where women in, in the Rwandan markets are sitting there with those old uh, uh, Singer <laughs> uh, sewing machines. They're just making stuff right and left, no patterns. But I guarantee you they started with making patterns. They, I guarantee you they started with patterns. So there's something about this, like, you start with a pattern, and once you gain mastery, do you need the pattern anymore? This is the trick question. Yes, you do. But you're not reliant upon it, right? You can jump in and do it. Um, people ask me, how did I learn to cook? How did you learn to cook? Finally, I really want to learn to cook. Get a good recipe book and work through it. And over time, you'll be able to start to improvise, right? How do jazz musicians learn to play jazz? They don't learn jazz. They learn scales. And then they learn classical music, and they learn to read music. And then they show up at the Village Vanguard and blow your socks off, right? How do they do it? Well, they, they learn the fundamentals, and it's on the basis of the fundamentals that they rock, right? That's what it's about. Um, so we do this all the time, and we think like, oh, but, but you know, it would be so much better if Christians could just improvise from the start. It's like, well, it doesn't work that way. Like, you have to learn. You have to really work at, work at this. Um, so the Lord's Prayer forms this pattern. And I would say that um, as you learn to pray, one of, the, one of the incredible things you can do is just sort of like, like go through the Lord's Prayer one line at a time. Take your time with it. Um, sit with the words for a bit. Um, it can really be, really be transformative. Okay, you ready? Question 162. Why should you practice the Lord's Prayer? I should pray the Lord's Prayer regularly because it teaches me to pray as Jesus commanded and desire what his Father wills. I really do believe this, that if, if we were left as human beings to sort of come up with the perfect prayer, we wouldn't write the Lord's Prayer. We just wouldn't. It would be something like, oh, impersonal God of the gaps, right, or something like that. It would just be like a mess. Um, because we would never think to say our Father. And, and the reality is no one did up until Jesus. Like, no one said we should say that at the start. Um, but it, what does it do? Well, it teaches me to pray as Jesus commanded. This is really important. Um, we, we pray because we're commanded to pray. Um, and, and listen to what Jesus says. When you pray, this is Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, which assumes a lot, right? It means you're going to pray. So when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. 
Um, so we're commanded to pray. And, and part of the joy of the Lord's Prayer is you can't go wrong praying the Lord's Prayer. You really can't. Um, but also to desire what his Father wills. And we're going to get into that as we go forward. How is the Lord's Prayer a pattern for prayer? The Lord's Prayer models the primary types of prayer, praise of God, intercession for his rule, petition for his provision and protection, and confession of sins. I should pray regularly in all these ways. So we actually get these like, you know, they're wonderful uh, models for prayer and, and how you can think about, you know, if you're going to spend half an hour in extemporaneous prayer, how do you do it? Well, uh, things like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, intercession, supplication, right? It's the actus method, right? Five things, you can put it on your fingers, you can draw it on your fingers if you need to. It's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, intercession, supplication. And, and you'll, you'll fill half an hour easily because you'll say, oh, I've got lots of things to be thankful for and I've got lots of things to adore God for and, and I can do that. But it's all there in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Adoration, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Um, confession, forgive us our sins. Um, uh, thanksgiving, right? It's all there. All right, what are the parts of the Lord's Prayer? The traditional form of the Lord's Prayer begins by addressing God the Father, makes seven petitions, adds a doxology, and concludes with amen. Um, or amen, depending on your, uh, your, uh, your church background. I, I find it really funny at Christ Church because you'll, you'll hear amen and amen together, and it's, it's a cacophony of amens. And uh, I learned as a good Episcopalian to pray amen. Um, I know that you may be amen. No judgment, you know. It doesn't matter. It's the same word. Okay, but, but the traditional form follows this. It's the address to God the Father, then seven petitions. They're classically called petitions. Um, and the reason is not because you're petitioning God for anything. It's just kind of the, the way to think about um, each line of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and then there's this doxology, which uh, if you know the history of that, that doxology, it's, it's very ancient. Um, and it's so ancient that it winds up in certain New Testament texts but by no means all of them, and the more ancient texts don't include it. Um, so if you read a modern Bible, and you read Matthew chapter 6, and you read the section of the Lord's Prayer, it won't be there because they're relying on the earlier texts. Um, but it's been there for so long, we just do it, right? Um, and, and here's part of the reason. You'll note that in our liturgy, the only thing that we have in these and thous in the entire liturgy now is the Lord's Prayer. Why? You can change anything you want, just don't change that. Okay, why? Because there will be rebellion. <laughs> Quickly. You all will be like, I don't like that new Lord's Prayer, Father. I don't, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> because why? Well, because we human beings are liturgically conservative to the core. right? We think you do it, there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way, and the right way is the way we've been always doing it. right? <laughs> and that's it. Um, full stop. Um, and, you know, listen, I, I don't judge anyone who changes the Lord's Prayer, but, but the reality of it is that, that at the heart of the liturgy, and we know this, and we act like it too, is the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, I would say from the first century on, the most essential part of the Eucharistic liturgy, you know what it is? The Lord's Prayer. It's what's always been there. Um, in fact, there are church fathers who say, if you, if you do the Eucharist without the Lord's Prayer, it's invalid. Didn't work. Try it again. <laughs> you know, well, why? Because that's the response 
to the gospel as given in this uh, format in the liturgy. Right? Think about that for a moment. When we pray through the, through the liturgy and through the canon of the Eucharist, what's being given? An account of salvation. In fact, in some of the ancient liturgies, it's even more explicit. Like, it's just all about, like, this is what led up to the incarnation, and then there was this, and then there was this, and, and this happened. Therefore, <laughs> let's pray our Father, right? It's that kind of thing. Um, so that is, that is how it, 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 it shakes out. All right, let's begin with our Father. Why do we call God our Father? We call God our Father because Jesus teaches his disciples that we are God's children and should call God our Father. Um, it's a very simple answer, but I, I, I like to go a little bit further out on this because I love what Augustine says about our Father. He, by the way, if you ever want some good reading on the Lord's Prayer, the, Augustine's sermons on the Lord's Prayer are fantastic. But he gives this image, and it's a wonderful image. He talks about, you know, when an earthly father finds out that he's going to have a kid or another kid, what's the first thought? Oh, no. How are we going to handle that? <laughs> That's really going to be really expensive. And joy comes in a bit, right? And you sort of get happy about it later. But, but the first thought is normally like, oh, no. What did we get ourselves into? How am I going to do that? Like, you know, colleges, they keep getting more and more expensive. Like, that's, all you, that's what you can think about for, for the short term after you hear this. Um, we worry about another mouth to feed, right? definitely. Um, and Augustine says that God, God the Father is not like human fathers. He doesn't sit there and wonder how he's going to have another mouth to feed. Why? Because that's not his problem. <laughs> so, Augustine imagines Jesus on the cross. And his arms stretched out. And he imagines Jesus looking up to the Father saying, you got room for one more? And what's the answer? It's always yes. Always yes. Because that's the status which we're given as Christians, as adopted children, adoptees into God. Like I just say that full stop, like into the life of God. That's what we are, adoptees. Um, we're welcomed to the family, seated at the table, given the family name, all of that, right? This is why we baptize. We baptize in the name of what? Who? Whom? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Christian life is the life of the Trinity. It's adoption into the life of the Trinity. That's what it is. It's adoption into God. So he's like, and that's why we always call the kid by name, right? Or, or the adult by name. It's like, Joseph, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, we address you by name and then we give you a new name. Okay. Um, this, is, this, is, this speaks to that adoption. Um, who are God's children? All who come to God through faith and baptism in Christ are adopted as children of God the Father. Um, this is often a little bit clunky because we, you know, Anglicans will emphasize both things in Scripture that talk about how we become the child of God. Right? We'll, we'll emphasize faith. Sure. We'll also emphasize baptism. We're born of God. Um, they're not contradictory. In fact, they go together. They've always gone together. We need to remember that. Um, the idea that someone could be baptized without faith, especially an adult, 
is abhorrent. The idea that a child could be baptized and no expectation whatsoever to their being raised faithfully as a faithful Christian. Abhorrent, right? We should avoid both problems, right? Uh, but there's this, there's this, there's a clarity here that I think is, is found even in the muddle. Um, it's that um, this adoption happens by being incorporated into the body of Jesus Christ. So in the, in the old ways of Anglicanism, you would ask this, like the very first catechism, out of, catechism question out of the gate for little kids was, kid, what's your name? And they give you your name. And the, the question is, well, who gave you this name? And it's like, my parents and my godparents when I was baptized. And then the question is, because great pedagogy always is like, what do you know, kid? Like, what do you know for sure? Like, what does every kid know? They know their name. Okay. Pretty cool, right? If you ever want to teach a class full of people, you say, what's your name? Because <laughs> it just invites this like, oh, there, there's an investment going on here. This is good, right? If you ever want to like train employees, what's your name? Um, wonderful option. Um, and then you start to engage on that. Um, who gave you the name? Who gave you your name? Oh, my mother gave me the name. Like, well, what does it mean? All that. Okay, but the, the catechism, the, ancient, the, uh, the 1662 catechism, which goes back to 1549, asks it this way. Um, and I can't, even, why can't I remember it? It's something like, what did God grant you when you were baptized? And he's like, and the answer is, I became um, a member of Christ, a child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom. And you would memorize that. You'd say, that's what I became. Um, and that's such an important thing. I became a child of God, uh, a member of Christ, an inheritor of the kingdom. Um, and, and so kids grow up learning that. Um, but, but consider this for a moment that um, we're really, we've really got this kind of problematic way of speaking about who are God's children today. Like, it's all those, you know, the 80s were awful in this. It was like, we are the world. Right? It's, it's just, it's, it's this idea of like universal brotherhood and all of these kind of like fanciful ideas. Um, and well, it's true, we share in one human nature, right? Do we share in adoption as God's children, as human beings? What should, our, what should be our answer? Emphatically, no. No. Um, in the ancient church, they would actually say, like, you know, we're going to teach you the Lord's Prayer, okay? But you can't pray it yet because you're not baptized. You're not a child of God. He doesn't hear you. Like, it's that kind of stuff that the fathers are saying. Why? Because they want you to get that it's your status as an adopted child that enables you to pray. Um, there's a status involved in this. Why does Jesus teach us to pray our Father? Jesus teaches us always to understand ourselves not only as individuals, but as members of God's family of believers and to pray accordingly. And this is why we pray in the third person. Our Father, give us this day. Um, even when you pray alone, you pray this as a member of the body of Christ. This all goes together. Membership in the body of Christ. Membership in Christ. Uh, calling on God as your Father. Right? How is it given? It's, it's given expressly through this rebirth which is given in baptism. This joining to the risen body of Christ in baptism. Jo being joined to His death in baptism. Uh, but also being a partaker in the faith of the whole church. So this is really key, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of like, the, this is the hard part, it's, 
every Christian should know. Like, oh, it's not even a given anymore. Like, I'm amazed at how many people have never been baptized just because they just never got to it. Um, and the church didn't really insist on it. So it was like, okay. But I was talking to a Baptist guy yesterday on the phone. He was like, I said, well, for Anglicans, we believe that you know, membership in the church comes because of baptism. And, she, and he was like, Baptists believe that too. I was like, yes, they do. <laughs> I'm glad you know that. <laughs> but that's the truth, right? Is that this, this comes because you're, you are incorporated into the body of Christ, uh, bodily. That's what incorporation means. Um, but we understand ourselves not as individuals in this sense, but as members of a living body. Um, and this is why the the church is not just an organization. I think there's a lot of thought that the church is an organization and, you know, we, we, we do all these things and isn't it great and, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, the church is a living organism uh, joined to Christ uh, bodily. All right, so we pray like that, our Father. Um, it's, it's a really uh, wonderful thing when you start to pray with your own kids. So some of you will have kids someday and you, and you say, like, well, what do we... How do we teach kids to pray? You teach them the Lord's Prayer. That's like the first thing they should learn to pray. And they learn it because they hear you pray it on their behalf. Um, and sometimes it takes a little while, but, but they'll get it eventually, right? And that's a really key, really key thing. Um, it's also, it never ceases to amaze me how the kids at Christ Church learn the Lord's Prayer, not so much in their family life, but in the church when there's that wonderful setting of the Lord's Prayer we, we do here, kids, it's so easy to memorize. Right? Because it's all this kind of call and response going on. It's beautiful. Um, so they get that. You know this because you, 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 you got the same version. You've had the same version. You, you, I don't, have you been here outside of Lent? No, okay, so you, you'll get it. You, you know it. You know it well. Um, how is God like earthly fathers? Like all loving and sincere earthly fathers, God loves us in our weakness, provides for our needs, teaches us in our ignorance, and corrects us when we go astray. And, you know, if you're a father, you know, there's going to be like, oh, gosh, <laughs> That's, that hurts, you know, because, you know, I was raised in this kind of family where it's like, why do you do what you're told? Because if you don't, I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> I'm going to make it really bad on you, right? Um, it's 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 sometimes worse than that. Sometimes it's you know, uh, I take it personally when you don't do X Y Z. That's not what this is talking about. Like all loving and sincere earthly fathers, God loves us in our weakness. That's good news, isn't it? What wonderful good news that is. Like, I'll just tell you, when I feel weak, I feel unloved. You should be better than that. Like that's not that is not a good way to think. Like you should think when I'm weak with Paul, then I'm strong. Why? Because then God's grace can really take over. Um, God provides for our needs, even when He's not providing for our wants and greatest desires and the kind of you know outpaced uh, uh, narcissism that we often have, right? It's, it's, it's this. He provides for our needs. Um, all earthly fathers provide for the needs of their children, right? I mean, this is what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew chapter 11. It's, you know, you're evil, and you know how to give good gifts to your children when they ask you, right? So when the child asks for something good, do you give them a scorpion or a snake or something like that? Well, no, not at all. You, wanna, you want to provide for your children. Teaches us in our ignorance. Oh, Lord. I love that. This was so well written. I'm so... I'm, always thoroughly impressed by the committee and what they did. 
teaches us in our ignorance. The reality of it is every single one of us is ignorant in some way. It's not a slight, it's just to tell the truth. Like, you don't really know what's really going on. <laughs> We're all ignorant. I, I actually think if the truth of the universe was really exposed to us, we'd freak out. We wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, so, so God's patient. He teaches us in our ignorance. Like, doesn't, doesn't put everything out in front of us. I actually think good parents are those that sort of tease out the details before their kids. Like, I'm not going to teach you everything, but I'll teach you some things. And then I'll teach you a little bit more, and then I'll teach you a little bit more. And, and they see themselves as teachers um, and corrects us when we go astray. So course corrections, right? Um, it's, it's, it's good news that God lets us go astray. Consider this for a moment, right? I mean, we, we have a nation that's just suffering, suffering so much. We have children who are suffering so much because they've got helicopter parents. And you know about helicopter parents. You deal with them all day, every day, right? It's, it's, they swoop in and they steal a child's opportunity to learn something. And then what do they do? Well, the kid loses self-confidence. The kid thinks, I don't know how to do anything. I'm dumb. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do They lose all this confidence because they've never failed at anything in their lives because they always get rescued from failure. Like, what we see in creation is that you can decide to do things that are disordered, that are awful, that are evil, that are, that are even malevolent. And what happens? Well, thanks be to God, there are natural consequences most of the time. Not for everything, but most of the time. Like, you know. Well, consider it for just a moment. If I go home tonight and I eat too much, and I eat all the ice cream that I really want to eat, but I'm not going to because I know what it'll do, right? I'm going to have a stomachache, a big one, and it's going to hurt, and I'm going to spend a lot of time you know, in the bathroom, okay? Just be honest with you. And I know that I know that I know that, that I will bear the consequence of my bad decision. I will bear the natural consequence. And natural consequences, as the philosophers teach us, are wonderful teachers. <laughs> They're the most wonderful teachers a person could possibly have. In fact, good societies are measured by how well they let natural consequences play out. That's just the truth, right? Pull the natural consequence, society goes to hell in a handbasket. Why? Because nobody's responsible for anything anymore. Okay? So this is, really, this is really key. God lets us fail, um, but what does he do? He graciously corrects us. Not just through natural consequences, but by calling us back to himself. Um, such a wonderful thing. This is what we mean when we say our Father. Um, it's very catechetical to pray our Father, right? Because we think about these things. We should. How is God unlike earthly fathers? Unlike our natural fathers, our Heavenly Father loves us perfectly, is almighty in His care, makes no errors in judgment, and disciplines us only for our good. Oh, another hurt if you're a father, um, or about to be. Um, Unlike our natural fathers, our Heavenly Father loves us perfectly. You know, one of, the, one of the things that's really hard when you grow up is when you realize that your father is not perfect. It's a giant letdown. In fact, you know, Freud used to say you can't really be a grown-up until your father dies. Like, you can't really be a man until your father dies. Of course, um, 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 
oh gosh, why can't I uh, remember the other guy's name, the other psychologist, Jung. Jung says, well, sometimes that can be just sort of like a metaphorical death. Like you just see your father fail, big time. Like fail to love you, fail to care for you, fail in marriage, fail to be X, Y, Z. Like no matter what it is, that's the moment you grow up and it stinks. But look at this, unlike our earthly fathers, unlike our natural fathers, our heavenly father loves us perfectly is almighty in his care, makes no errors in judgment, and disciplines us only for our good. Now, when you think about it, that's really hard to believe, isn't it? Because you sit there, and I know the first thing that goes through your mind, because it goes through mine. It's like, well, what about when this happened? God didn't really care for me then. He wasn't loving me perfectly then. It's like, look, this is the thing I've learned as a father. And I always use this analogy, so you've got to forgive it if you've heard it before. We have for years had a couch that's sort of like freestanding in the living room, and the kids love to climb on the back of it. And a good lot of the time, they climb no problem. Like, they are not going to fall, whatever. Okay? I have a choice here. I can go rescue my child from, from the possibility that they would fall off the couch and hurt themselves, preserve them from the danger of it, or I can sit there and watch trying not to make snarky comments. Like, I'm going to laugh at you when you fall. Okay. Why do I let my kids climb on the back of the couch? I'm not going to say it's because I'm a good dad. I'm going to say it's because I'm trying to be a good father. It's really hard to watch your kids fail. It takes discipline. It takes love, actually. And of course, they fall, and they get hurt, and what happens? I pick them up in my arms and I say, oh, that must have hurt really badly, didn't it? I'm so sorry. Right? That's good parenting. Right? Why do we apply this standard to ourselves? Well, not everybody does. Actually, a lot are just really bad at this. But why don't we apply this standard to God? Like, why are you in the muck you're in? Well, you chose to be there a lot of the time. You really, you made the, you made the conscious decision. Now, natural disasters, all that sort of mishap, that happens too. Right? It definitely does. Like people get sick. They don't know why. People face all kinds of things. I don't know why. Um, but in the midst of it, God is letting these things occur to us um, for our good and for his glory. What a great thing, right? It's a great thing to be reminded of. Um, you know, the, the reality is we human beings will look back in the most miserable moments of our entire lives and we'll say, God, that was great, wasn't it? Like, seven years ago, before coming to Planet Christ Church, I faced the worst, the worst thing in my life. At least I thought. I've faced worse since. But I look back on it and I say, God, thanks be to God for that pit of despair moment. Like, golly, if, if I didn't have that, I'd be a terrible person. You know? Think about cancer survivors. What do they always say? God, I wouldn't wish cancer on my worst enemy, but man, I'm so glad I had it. <laughs> like, I had a friend in college. He was a young guy. He was 20 years old. He got terrible, life-threatening cancer at 20 years old. And he, would, and he, and he beat it. Um, and he would tell everybody who, could, who would listen, he'd say, like, every single day is a bonus to me. God, what a way to live your life, right? And would he wish that he never got cancer? Or maybe, but not in reality. Um, so we have, we have to be trained to think this way, right? That, that, that God the Father is good to us, even when it doesn't feel like it. And that's why you know, we call out to God the Father, even in the midst of 
this terror. Think about Jesus for a moment. What is, what is Jesus? Jesus cries out from the cross, right? In despair. Um, we're going we're gonna to see that just very, very soon in the liturgies. We're going to see all of that. And it's heart-wrenching because you sit there and you say, like, I don't know if I could do that. Like, getting crucified and calling on God, I'd probably be like, ah, forget you. This is, this is a waste of my time. I hate this. Like, <laughs> but, but we're taught constantly in the Psalms, like, look, the sacrifice of God is a, is a troubled spirit. Um, it's not feeling happy and it's not feeling joyous all the time. Okay, I have to wrap up. Um, let's, let's wrap these two up. These two up. What is heaven? Heaven is the realm of God's presence, power, and glory, which exist invisibly alongside this visible realm, and from which God hears the prayers of his children. When we say, our Father who art in heaven, what we mean is not that God is way up there beyond the, the firmament or, you know, turn left at Jupiter and you'll find him. We, we're saying much more uh, this, that God is uh, living in the invisible glory uh, and presence and, and power that exists alongside this visible realm. This is an important distinction because uh, Christians occupy, uh, and we think about this, we should think about this, a sacramental universe in which the outward shows forth the inward um, and invisible. Um, there's been great damage done by thinking about God as being way up there and sort of completely unconcerned with what goes on here. When in fact we Christians teach that <laughs> God is literally holding the whole darn universe together. When Paul says he upholds the universe by the power of his glory, that's what he means. Right? If you read uh, John chapter 1, this is the impression you should get. It's not God is way out there and we're way down here. It's, it's goodness gracious. The whole creation is shot through with the presence of God, invisible as it is. But that's heaven. Um, so we, we believe that. Um, and that's, what, that's why we pray later. Thy kingdom come. How? On earth as it is in heaven. So that sacraments cease, right? So that what we see in the outward is what's there in the inward. And there's no outward or inward. It's all one, right? That's the idea. Um, Paul says, um, God shall be all in all. How does your Father in heaven help you here on earth? Because God is in all places and knows all things. He hears and answers my prayers, directs my paths, and strengthens me in times of trouble. One of the greatest plagues on the church today is this kind of uh, deism, which is just disrupting the lives of, of people in church. Uh, we think God way out there only comes when there's major crises, uh, only when I'm really having a hard time. The rest of the time just leaves me alone. It's like, no, no, that's not what Christians teach. Um, Christians teach that God actually dwells in you bodily by His Holy Spirit, um, that we receive God into our bodies in the Eucharist, and that we have God as our Father. Not in a disconnected way, but with us. Um, and that's, that's great hope. Um, uh, so we've got to avoid these deistic ways of thinking where we just think, well, God doesn't care, God's not involved, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, it, you can call it whatever you want. It ain't Christian. Um, and it's not biblical. So leave you with that one.